Thank you, Steve, for leading us thus far and drawing our hearts and minds to the person of Christ, to our awesome God. We're going to take the scriptures up again, and if you have a copy of them, follow with me, please, in Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 4. And we're going to read from verses 1 to the end of verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, commencing at verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Trust God will add a blessing to his own word. It's wonderful to have been singing these songs this morning and to uh, affirm within our own hearts what it is to be a Christian, amen? And um, it, it's just wonderful to, to even sing in a future day when the Lord comes, as we sang in that last song, that we will be there in that mighty band of those who have trusted in Christ through faith. But no doubt some of you, like I have and like I do, have asked the question, why is it that some people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over, yet fail to respond in repentance and faith. Or, or maybe you know someone who once professed to know Christ, to be a Christian, but for whatever reason they've walked away from the faith and actually give no evidence of ever belonging to the Lord at all. Not too hard to think of those kind of people in our lives, maybe in our families, maybe our friends and or so forth. And so we can ask the question, what is the real issue here? What's going down? What, what happens? Well, I believe in this section that we've read this morning, those kind of questions are answered somewhat for us. They get answered in an indirect way as the Apostle Paul describes what it is and what it means to be a faithful minister of the new covenant or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in this section, as we have reiterated over and over, it's part of a five-chapter digression. In parenthesis, for whole five chapters, as it were, Paul emphasises some amazing truths about the New Covenant. But this is an inspired digression. It's an inspired parenthesis. So, being good students of the word, we need to take note of every detail. As a matter of fact, the Spirit of God seems to 
have allowed or given Paul the liberty to go on these uh, inspired rabbit trails, we might call them. And uh, he does that, which benefits the whole church, even in Paul's day and right up to today. And so we may be forgiven in thinking so far, as we've been going through this verse by verse, we may be forgiving that, uh, for thinking that Paul has really lost the thread again. He's done it again because in verses, chapter 3 from verses 6 to 18, uh, he, we see there him very much defending himself. And as you know, the, he, he was being attacked and he was being pulled to pieces by these false teachers back in Corinth or the whole area of Macedonia where Corinth is. Uh, he was being attacked personally and so he defends himself not to hold himself or promote himself, but in order to defend the gospel, the ministry of the new covenant, which he was a minister of. And they were casting and they were casting doubt on his integrity and the integrity of the message that he preached. Well, here in this section, from verses 1 to 6, Paul picks up not only on defending the ministry of the new covenant, but also defending himself as a minister and everyone who endeavours to be a faithful minister of the gospel. And he does this first by focusing on the resolve of a faithful minister. We see this in verses 1 to 2. And so we talked a little bit about resolves, the same word coming from it, meaning resolution. And so Paul had a resolution when he kept. And even though it's past the new year, this is a good one. Every faithful minister should have a resolve. And might I say at this point, I want to make very clear, that everyone who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ is a follower, a disciple of Christ. Now you have to answer for yourself whether you are a faithful follower or not too faithful. There's always room for improvement. I know that, absolutely. And so every person who is a genuine believer is a minister of the gospel at some level or other, whether it be in the home or whether it be in the workplace or whether it be from this pulpit. Every facet of our lives are vocations to serve the Lord. I want you to be very clear on that. Don't get carried away with the idea, okay, church is for the Lord and the rest of the week's for me. That is not an option for a genuine believer. So you're all in the Lord's service. And so here we note again in our text, the first word in verse 1 is the word therefore. In other words, what this means is one single word, owing to the wonderful eternal benefits that the Christian receives in the new covenant that he's talked about prior, owing to all that, how should we respond? That's what the word therefore really is there for. And so let's see how Paul responds to this new covenant ministry that he's been blessed with in Jesus Christ in order to uh, learn from him and even emulate him. Remember, he said later on, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So we have got biblical grounds for emulating and learning from the Apostle Paul. Don't emulate me, okay? I'll let you down big time. But here, from, on the, based on the veracity of the Scriptures, we can imitate and emulate Paul. So let's do this this morning. And so what do we see here? We see first that Paul acknowledges, since we have this ministry, you see that in the text? And to, to, to Paul, 
Having this ministry of being a, a minister, a proclaimer, a teacher, a preacher, a, a personal witness of the new covenant was a tremendous, awesome privilege. He understood that this was a blessing that had been trusted to him from God. And to him, there was nothing that could compare with it. Because Paul could see himself as a minister, yes, but he in himself being so unworthy of being entrusted with such an awesome and glorious vocation. And so that's why Paul says, therefore, since we have received this mercy, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You see, Paul understands something of God's mercy. I wonder if we here do this morning. Paul understood that God's mercy is God holding back the just judgment and penalty that a sinner deserves. God holds it back from that person, doesn't let it fall on him. Paul understands that. And so God does this to every single one of us. Even right today, every one of us in this congregation, he's holding back his wrath, his judgment, his divine justice. He's holding it back. That's his mercy in order for sinners to come to repentance and faith. How merciful is that? Can't get better than that, right? And so Paul understood this, especially the Apostle Paul, because you know what he once was. He was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and, the Scriptures say, a violent aggressor. He was a guy that attacked the Christian church early in its fledgling state big time. He committed men and women to prison and no doubt even on some occasions to their death. He was the one who sort of looked after all the equipment while... The Jews stoned Stephen to death, the believer, and giving his okay to it. So Paul understood that if anyone did not deserve mercy, it was him. Well, he also stood that, understands now that once he held a veiled face. In other words, his face, his eyesight, his, his view of the Lord Jesus was hidden, it was veiled. He had a hardened mind towards the things of God, to the true things of God. Yes, he had a religion. He was a Jew. He was zealous. Remember? He was, he was zealously involved in the, in Judaism, but opposed to the person of Christ. He, this, this veil was across him, as it were, and he could not see the truth of Jesus Christ when he came into the world. And so he, he did, he refused to see the, the truth of the old covenant where it condemned sinners. And also he refused to see or was blind to the liberty in Jesus Christ in the new. But in spite of that, God showed him mercy. God showed mercy to this Christian-hating, zealous lawkeeper. How did he show mercy to him? Not only holding him back, God just didn't stop there. He revealed himself to Paul. I've heard this expression recently where a brother was giving thanks to God over this last year because God has revealed himself to me. I really love that. He wasn't talking about some fanciful dream or vision or impression. He was talking about as he looked into the scriptures and as he studied the word for himself in his journey, God revealed himself to him and he was thankful to God of that. Well, this is what... Happened to the Apostle Paul. God revealed himself in a bit more of a dramatic way, remember, on the road to Damascus. 
God shone his light on him, literally. And he was struck to the ground and he was blind for a period. But not only that, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 13 says, And he put me into service. So he not only saved him, but he gave him a vocation. How cool is that? And so because of this tremendous undeserved mercy that God had shown him, Paul says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. How dare I give up? How dare I walk away from the Christian faith when I can understand and appreciate and value the mercy of God? You see, Paul understood that it's all about the Lord Jesus. It was the mercy of God through Jesus Christ that had saved them and it's the mercy of God through Jesus Christ that was the basis of him being in the ministry. And that's what really mattered to Paul. You see, to lose heart, to lose heart, means to cave in when the going gets tough. We all know those times, right? We all have tough times. Trials will come. It's not a matter of if they'll come, it's when they come. Trials come. Testing times come. To lose heart means to bow out like a coward or to lose courage. That's what it means here. So Paul's saying, owing to the mercy of God, as I think about the mercy of God towards me, because of that, I will not lose heart. But Paul, despite all his sufferings, his beatings, the times he was stoned and left for dead, his shipwrecks, Paul's focus never left the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ, which had saved him and made him a minister and given him the strength to do the work of the ministry, hence he never lost heart. Now, folks, let's be very candid right here. If it was not for the mercy of God toward you and me, we would only ever know God's just condemnation, which we all deserve. And that's a given, right? That's a given. No argument about that. But God, listen, I'm quoting scripture here, but, I love the parts in Scripture. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins and transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. Surely this is our reason why we should not lose heart, why we should not bow out, why we should not walk away from the faith. Because of the mercy of God in Christ, we have every reason to be steadfast believers, to be courageous believers, to never bow out of the ministry that God has what? Has entrusted to us because he has entrusted you a ministry. And there are various kinds of ministry. It may be you being a mum in the home to your children and teaching them the things of God. It, this, that may be your ministry at this time. It may be being a dad who is faithful to his wife and bringing up your children in the ways of the Lord. That is well be your primary ministry at this time of your life. Or it may be me for me sitting up here, standing up here and doing what I'm doing now. Whatever it takes, folks, you are called into the ministry. And we dare not bow out. How could we think of bowing out and walking away when we dwell upon the great mercy of God? As we think about God's mercy and how Paul responded to it, it not only motivated Paul to be courageous, but it also motivated him to refuse certain things. 
I'll read that text again, but we have, it says, it goes on to say, but we have renounced the hidden things, there you are, hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So here is this resolve. He would not lose heart because of God's mercy. And here's this resolve also, and it should be the resolve of every minister of the gospel, just as it was of Paul. Paul, here it is, he rejected the notion, he rejected the idea that the purity and the power of the gospel needed any tempering or tweaking, so to speak, to make it more palatable. He refused that. He was resolved that that would never happen as far as he was concerned in ministering the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation all by itself without you and me adding to it, right? What Paul does here in commending his own sincerity as a good gospel minister is he indirectly, by the way, takes a swipe at these false teachers as I referred to before, who were back in Corinth, and they were guilty of doing exactly what Paul repudiates here in this letter. These false apostles were, were guilty of not only adding the old covenant, you know, they were saying, oh yes, believe in Jesus Christ, but you, you, the men must be circumcised, you must keep the feasts, you must keep the Sabbaths, you must keep the new moons, etc., etc., etc. And so they were adding to the gospel. They were legalists. Salvation is by God's grace through Faith alone, right? Grace alone through faith alone. That's what we hold and believe the teachers preach here. It's not grace alone through faith alone, plus you must do this, 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 this. Or you must wear a tie or must wear whatever. It's grace alone through faith alone. Don't add anything to the gospel, folks. Don't tweak it, okay? Never do that. And so these false apostles were exactly doing that. But they're also guilty of having a, having a hidden agenda. You know what the hidden agenda was under all this facade of being super spiritual and super religious by the things that they added to the gospel and the things they did? Uh, it, it was all about promoting themselves. Now, that's not uncommon, right, in our day and age in the evangelical church. Men and women, you might I say, promote themselves. And how they were doing that, they were doing it by craftiness, as our text says, or the word means deceit. And that's what the word means here, deceitful. And they were using all sorts of means to obtain this goal of promoting themselves, even though they were coming across as being super spiritual and zealous. In other words, Paul, he, he resolves to renounce anything that would disguise, camouflage or cover up the pure gospel. Now, why am I majoring on the gospel, folks? I'm majoring on the gospel because you must understand that it's only the gospel and the gospel alone whereby you can be saved. I don't care how many times you come to this church. I don't care how many times you pray, how many times you read the scriptures. You are saved by, by God. You come to faith through the gospel. By God's grace alone, through faith alone. That's it, period. Yes, Christianity is an exclusive religion. I make no apologies in saying that. I make no apologies in being dogmatic in that. Jesus said... Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no person comes to the Father but me. Now, whether I want to argue against that or not, my authority is the Scripture, and so it's through your authority, and so that's it. And so Paul renounces or he resolves to allow nothing to disguise or cover up the pure gospel for self-promotion. Matter of fact, he willingly, as you know, if you read through the book of Acts, suffered the shame and ridicule for the gospel's sake. 
It wasn't just for some cause or some other whatever. It was for the gospel's sake. I love John Calvin's um, comment on, on this part of the text, on this part where it says, things hidden because of shame. Because this is what we're, we're talking about. John Calvin says, and I quote here, that these things are all that disguises with which they adulterated the pure and native beauty of the gospel. Paul glories in having set forth the pure gospel while others set forth one that was disguised and covered with unseemly additions, end quote. Very clear. Very, very clear. My dear people, how we need this reminder today. I mean, how we need it. You know, I know how easy it is to be embarrassed or to be tempted to dumb down, brush over, make the gospel or endeavour to make the gospel more palatable, to be seeker-sensitive, if you want to use that term, in order to make sinners feel more comfortable just to save my face. I could do that very easily and often I'm tempted to do that. And we all know the temptation to be ashamed of the simplicity of Christ. We all know that. And to rectify that we are tempted to leave out, to rectify this, what we do, we're tempted to leave out certain truths of the gospel and and only kind of major on the ones that we feel unsaved people, non-Christian people, will be more comfortable, feel more comfortable with. We're really tempted to do that. I could do all those things, you could do all those things. And the reason we do that is we've got our focus off the great mercy of God towards us. Many Christians and churches by the score today, and I'm not being critical here of other churches, but hey, we've got to say it like it is. Many Christians and churches by the score are guilty of this very travesty and in doing so they adulterate the word of God as the text says here. Adulterating, by the way, in our English language, the Greek word, what it means, and they used it in common Greek culture of, of the day when this letter was written, was when they corrupted wine or corrupted gold, you know. I've got a pound of gold here, but really it's half full of some other material that looks like gold and you never tell. Or when you go and buy a bottle of bread at the bottle shop, it's half full of water, okay, or some other substance. And so that's what this word adulterated was used for, both those areas. And so in attempts to save face, what they do, what these false teachers did, they ignorantly tweaked the gospel in order to make the church more palatable and more comfortable and user-friendly. And so as they did then, nothing new under the sun, folks, people are still doing it today. Still doing it today. And so those who go down this trail of watering down the truth in the most devious and flamboyant and even in the most entertaining of ways, those who go down that trail, the result being another gospel is preached. Another gospel is preached, just as the false apostles were doing in Corinth. And so may this never be among us, folks. May it never be. Paul ejected such action and then commends himself for what? What does he commend himself here? He commends himself for the manifestation of the truth. You see that? manifestation of the truth. And the truth here is uh, just another term for the unadulterated gospel. And it's here that we can all take great encouragement not to lose heart uh, because look what Paul says about the truth. He says, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I love this because it tells me 
that a Poseidon disguised and tweaked gospel will never cut it in God's books. It's another and a false gospel. It will never, God will never use that to bring a person to genuine faith and repentance. It's only the pure gospel that God uses to convict men's consciences and order them to bring them to genuine repentance and faith. Talking to someone recently who uh, made this profession and came to faith and thought everything was going right and then uh, he was really concerned about, well, uh, where he was getting taught. Things weren't stacking up with the Word of God. And, and so what it did, it drove him back to study the Scriptures for himself and out of that he came to really know God in the person of Jesus Christ. Before he thought he was a Christian. But it wasn't until he studied and applied the word and truth that he became a genuine believer. And so, Paul, we need never be ashamed of the, of the gospel. And why is that? Because as Paul understood, everything that he said and did was all under the what? The all-seeing eye of God. You see that? In the sight of God. And that goes for us in our ministries today, wherever we are. God is watching, folks. And one day we're going to be held accountable for how we have served in the ministry. So may we never be ashamed of the truth of the gospel. And, uh, but more reasons why we should never be ashamed. Why? As we see in Romans 1.16, for it, that is the gospel, this gospel message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So let us never be ashamed of it. We'll go to point two. We see here the response of a faithful minister's message. We see this in verses three and four. All of us at some time, as I mentioned at the beginning, or rather have wondered why some people, and maybe close to us, have never come to genuine faith in Christ. After all, they've heard the same message you have over and over, and they may have even sat under the most eloquent of all preachers. And, uh, but still go on believing. Why is that? Well, Paul gives the answer here. And the answer is, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You might think that's a funny answer, but let me flesh this out a bit. Firstly, uh, his statement makes clear that this is not because of a fault in the truth. Okay, There's no problem, there's no fault with the message of the gospel. In other words, just because some people do not understand and respond in faith, just because our gospel is veiled, as Paul terms it here, or it's not disclosed to them, it's not made known to them, or not made clear to them, or it doesn't resonate with their own hearts, just because that happens, it does not mean that there is a problem with the content of the gospel or the way it is being presented. It doesn't necessarily mean that. So what Paul is doing here is he's defending the gospel he preached against the attacks of the teachers, and they were accusing him on two fronts. They were accusing him that his message was deficient, in other words, uh, against theirs, which was faith plus works. He was accusing him of his message being deficient, but they also accused him in, of his effectiveness in delivering the message. And as you know, Paul was a straight shooter, right? He didn't mess around. He was a straight shooter. He called it for what it was when it came to the gospel. Subjects that were imperative to the gospel like, like man's sin and, and God's grace and, and faith and, and the need for repentance and, and that Jesus is Lord. They were right in his hearers' faces at all times. 
He was a straight shooter. He said in his first letter, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How more straight a shooter can you be than that? His preaching was bold and it was clear and he even claimed that, this is what he said in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And it was because of this that the false apostles got their heckles up. They really got upset or they, or they maybe felt threatened or whatever. Out of it all, they accused Paul of lacking in ingenuity and expertise in his preaching to the point that his message became offensive and was ineffective. That was the accusation to him. And so they're the ones that kind of said, your gospel preaching has become a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, Paul, you need a better plan in order to market your product effectively so that your consumers will buy into it. That's a really relevant kind of thing, isn't it, up today in our situation. We get many churches who are market-driven, sorry to say, sad to say. They run on a business kind of model and they will do whatever it takes to suck in the crowd and to draw the crowd to fill these coffers down here. Very sad. Nothing new under the sun, folks. And this is what Paul was up against in his day, 2,000 years ago. Salvation via the gospel is never the result, never the result of human ingenuity or by the persuasive ability of the preacher. It is alone the sovereign act of God. You got that? John 6.44 records Jesus saying this, No one... That's exclusive, right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what does all this tell us? It tells us that the issue is not the ability or the clever rhetoric or the way the preacher packages his message, nothing to do with that. The issue is the state of the hearer. The state of the hearer. The spiritual state, where they are. And Jesus explained this spiritual state of the hearer when he, he gave that wonderful parable of the, the sower and the seed, remember? And so out goes the sower, the same sower, and he sows very good seed. You remember? And what happens to the seed? Some falls on thorn, a stony ground, some falls on thorny ground, some falls on reasonably good ground, another falls on really good ground. And as a result... This same sower who's saying the same good seed, there is different responses. There is different responses. The issue is not in the different soils that the seed fell on. The issue is the different responses. Yes, the minister of the gospel needs to be clear in his sowing or his preaching, can we say. Whereas being clever is not a requirement or funny or whatever. There are too, too many comedians in the pulpit these days, folks. Too many comedians. I was just reading recently where a church is putting on an evangelist to gut reach where it was all about humour. I just shook my head. We're not called to be clever. 
The reason being is that God alone can open sin-blinded eyes of those who are what? Dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And so that's why Paul makes this qualifying statement. And even if our gospel is veiled, that is, it's not accepted or not believed or, or I don't want to have anything to do with it. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled or hidden to those who are what? Perishing. In other words, those who are perishing, those who are on the broad road that the Bible speaks about, leading to a ro- the way of destruction, eternal destruction. And they are on that road because what? They are blind to the truth of the gospel. But what's more, and they love being so. How horrible is that? It's not a matter of if only they heard a less threatening message. Or if only young Johnny had Christian friends when he was going through his teenage, that would have sealed it. No, the rock bottom issue is those who reject the gospel are without excuse, period. Because why? Because they love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. John 3 verse 19. And on top of this off, Rudy, an unsaved person, hasn't, hasn't any hope at all in himself and in humanity. He hasn't any hope at all because on top of all this, what does that text say here today? The God of this world has what? What has it done? He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. You see that? What for? What has he done that for? Here's the answer. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the unbeliever is dead in sin and that's the pathway he reckons is right and he loves it, sorry. But what makes them think like this and stubbornly refuse the gospel like? It's Satan, the God of this world. You may think, oh, I thought the God with capital G was the God of this world. No, no, no. The God of this world is Satan. The God of this world is Satan. Or this age may be a better way of putting it. Because really at the end of the day, it's Satan who controls this world's ideologies. It's cultures, it's opinions, it's goals, it's economic strategies, it's education system, all it's philosophy. Satan owns and controls them all. He's in charge. God has given him reins. Okay, Satan, you go. You know, a little bit like he did with Job. Okay, you see, there's Job. He's a righteous man. Satan says, ah, you let, let me have him for a little while and, and he'll curse you and die. No, he won't. Okay, you can do what you will. Don't take his life. And so it certainly looked like Satan had full control there. And it's a bit like this age. Yes, Satan is in charge and God has allowed him to do what he will in this age. And so God is a God of this, Satan is the God of this world in that regard. And so because of this mammoth, influential uh, grip on our world system, what does he do? So we're not only sinners by nature, born that way, bent toward away from God, but we're born and grow up and are nurtured in a culture, in a world system that is full on against God. Not much hope for the unbelievers here. That's why it's not down to cunning presentation or seeker sensitive gospel messages that use a watered down message to win people. That's why it's not down to that. No, no, no. You know what it's down to? For a person to come to Christ. And if you're an unsaved person here today, this is what it takes. Because when a person comes to Christ, it is a miracle. An absolute miracle. 
when we consider what's all against the unbeliever who is dead and he's got the, the pressures of this satanic world against him. And even though it's put across in cunning and deceit, it takes the sovereign action of God to invade dead and depraved hearts by His Spirit through the Holy Scriptures, stirring them to life to repent and believe. That's what it takes, friends. That's what it takes. That's why we need to pray and pray and keep on praying for the lost. And if you're unsaved here today and you are confronted with this truth that, wow, spiritually I am still blind to the truth of the gospel, can I warn you to take heed of the gospel message that offers eternal life and forgiveness of sin by God's grace alone through faith alone. And finally, we see the resignation of the faithful minister in verses 5 and 6. You don't have to get worried. Or well, maybe you, you need to do, I am not resigning. Okay? Too often these days, the only meaning for the word resign for the, someone in the ministry like myself has to do with them opting out. And then even we could branch that further for Christians who opt out to walk away from the faith uh, is to hang up our pastoral boots, as it were, and lose heart because of lost heart. And this is a real dilemma, I might say, for the evangelical church. I was looking up some statistics on this just the other day, and in Australia alone, do you realise there's over 50%, and I'm talking here of people like myself or people who have been called into mission work, uh, there's over 50% of pastors and ministers starting will not last five years. Over 50%. And one out of every ten ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form or other. So one out of every ten who starts will not progress and go on in their life giving themselves to the ministry of God's word like they were first called to. But I also found this interesting. When they, you know what statistics are, you can make them say anything, but I I believe because in the US also it's very close to ours, 50%, and one out of every 10. But one thing that was interesting or alarming I might say was that the it says the prime reasons that pastors leave the ministry is because the church people are not willing to go in the same direction and goal of the pastor. Well, well, I wonder if that's something to do with the real problem. I wonder. You see, folks, too many pastors, or any servant of the Lord for that matter, have their own agenda, their own goals, and it's all about self and promoting self. And we see this in many pastors right around the evangelical world. It's all about a promotion of themselves because look at the church that I've built, etc., 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 and we could go on. Too often the case is that they promote themselves, their clever ideas, rather than in the power of the Spirit, preach Christ. That's what it is, sad to say. And this is exactly what the false teachers at Corinth were doing. They were self-promoters. Paul says to them in chapter 10 and verse 12 of this, of this letter, he says of them, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. They were promoting themselves. They were pushing themselves, their own agenda. 
Paul never preached or promoted his own agenda. He preached Jesus Christ as Lord. He resigned himself. Here's the word. He resigned himself and all his intellectual and religious achievements, and believe you me, he had heaps of them, he resigned them all to this one singular goal, to preach Jesus Christ as Lord. He resigned them and considered them. It says in Scripture in Philippians 3 and 8, all that stuff that he'd accumulated in his own human achievement, he considered them only fit for the dung heap. He would rather be, he says here, your bondservant, your bondservant. He was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sure, but he says, I'm your bondservant to the other believers. A loyal slave for Christ, in other words. My dear people, a faithful minister willingly resigns himself to become nothing so that God can become everything and all to him. He resigns himself to the cross in order to serve the people in doing what? In preaching Christ Jesus as Lord. Because that's what Jesus Christ is. That's who he is, right? He's not just a historical figure and a man who created a following. If you're a genuine Christian, he is Lord. He is Lord. We need to resign ourselves to that. But we can ask here, why is such a resignation like this necessary? The answer is in verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See that? In other words, Paul understood, and he takes us right back, the reader right back, he understood that as it was God's mighty power that turned those physical lights on in the heavens and the sky, like the moon and the sun, as it took God's mighty power to turn those lights of creation on, there also needs to be the same God that turns a spiritual light on in the unbeliever's heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what it takes. Folks, when God sovereignly shines his penetrating light into an unbeliever's heart through the preaching of the gospel, that divine miracle, that divine action does one thing. This is what it does. It brings a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. It unveils the blindness and causes the sinner to see that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. That's a starter. So if you have someone who calls themselves a Christian and they don't believe in, in the deity of Christ, that person is not a Christian. Jesus is God. And then it impresses upon him the reason why he became man in order to die for sin and so forth. And we have the gospel there. Now this again should tell us that every genuine salvation is a miracle of God's grace and mercy. Amen. And the more we appreciate that salvation is of the Lord, the more we'll understand our role as faithful ministers in his service. You see, it's not about creativity. It's not about being clever. It's not about casting a vision. That's a common one. It's not about organisation or fancy rhetoric. Although some of these things can be helpful, It's not about them primarily. Faithful ministers of the new covenant will be motivated firstly by the mercy of God. Faithful ministers will also understand it is the Lord who produces right responses. 
And faithful ministers will be those who willingly resign their own agendas, whatever they might be, in order to preach Christ Jesus as Lord. May God add a blessing to his own word this morning. Let us pray. Shall we stand? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our complete, sufficient authority. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for life and godliness. Thank you that your word tells us the way of salvation. And we thank you for this text that we have looked at today. Even though some things may not have been clearly uh, explained, help us to see that Jesus Christ is Lord and that alone demands a response from us. So Lord, we just pray that any veil that is over our eyes, the eyes of our heart, lift that veil and cause us to see the wondrous truth of Christ and that we can be your people through repentance and faith. So Father, I ask your blessing upon us and for the remainder of the day, for your blessing again. These things we ask in Jesus' name.